Welcome to our podcast, Land and People. We are interviewing practitioners and people with ancestral ties to the land about their work, about their feelings in conserving these wonderful sacred places. And we're going to introduce ourselves. I'm Melissa Camara, I'm a conservationist now working in wildfire science and communication, and I have my partner here. Yeah, Clay Chowernick. I'm an extension faculty at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, and I work in, um, again, also with practitioners supporting folks working on fire management and ecosystem conservation and restoration and trying to link them up with the best tools and science that's out there and try to kind of nudge the scientists <laughs> to actually work on problems that that the practitioners have uh, in the real world. Oh, I like that, in the real world. Yes, and speaking of the real world, that's why we're doing this podcast. We really want to just connect our listeners with incredible people who've had amazing careers to start with some of our senior um, conservationists, botanists. I really, they're botanists, right? Yeah. I mean, we... La- well, a lot of them are botanists yeah. so far, but anyone that's kind of working mm-hmm. in this field and, you know, we, we hear about maybe the work that they do, but not don't get so, so many chances to ask about why they do what they do and how they got there and, you know, how we develop these connections uh, to, to the species and the places that, that, uh, that folks are trying, working so hard to protect. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We want to in a sense, catalog, I'd say, you know, some of these places which are ever changing, which have changed. And that's, that's sort of our purpose here. At least I think of it that way. Um, And to also make emotional connection too with some of these places that folks maybe have never heard or seen. So if you haven't listened to our very first guest, Bob Hobdi, he was with us last time and He's a retired forester, um, and now we're going to be interviewing our next guest. But before we do that, I think Clay has something he would like to say. Uh, I thought you had to say it this time. Do I have to say it, or are you going to say it? (laughs) I'll just say it. I'll say it. Um, Yes, uh, as always, the views and opinions expressed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of the funders, employers, or other organizations that we or our guests work with. So just to put that out there, yep. um, we uh, we want this to be kind of an open space for folks to share their perspectives and and um, you know their 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 lived experience in, in these Thank places. you, thank you, Clay. Um, I always don't like reading the legalese part, so I'm glad that you did that. Um, I just I hope think that it does. I think I think we're okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so on to our second guest. Um, we have Steve Perlman. Gosh, he is another treasure of Hawaii, really of the Pacific. He's someone that was, again, sort of a superstar to me coming up in the field in the 1990s as a natural resource manager, someone who I saw literally for the first time on the big screen, 30 feet high in an IMAX called Hidden Hawaii, where he was just up there on the cliffs of Molokai pollinating the super rare plant and just sort of free climbing. And that was my first knowledge of Steve. And my husband, who's a botanist, Mm -hmm. you know, has worked more with him. And I think you have too, right, Clay? Yeah, I actually got to literally uh, follow in his footsteps. I was uh, an assistant field botanist for about three years at uh, the National Tropical Botanical Garden where, where Steve worked. So I got to, uh, Go on some adventures with Steve, try to follow him up into the mountains and down over cliffs and all these things and, and really learn, you know, what cut my teeth uh, as far as doing botany and field work uh, in Hawaii years ago. So it's really cool to uh, kind of come come full circle. And, and also, like I had known about that work and what those guys were doing over at the gardens through mass media. Mm-hmm. Right. These guys, it's like the cover of National yeah. Geographic kind of stuff. And, and so just to get that opportunity was, was pretty phenomenal. Um, but then as we'll see with the interview, I think what is pretty cool is you think about Steve kind of being off in the, up on the mountain with the plants, but you know, a lot of what we talk about is actually kind of about Mm -hmm. the people, right. And, and Mm -hmm. the importance of, of, you know, through his personal connections to these places, but also just his connection to, to the people he's learned from and, and, and the people that live 
and uh, some of the other islands that he's he's been able to uh, botanize. Yeah, I think it's incredible to hear his passion. I mean, one thing, the thing that stands out for me is just how passionate he is at age 75. You know, so, yeah, you'll hear it. You'll hear the passion in his voice. You'll hear yes, it. Yeah, uh, ever the optimist. Yeah, exactly, um, sure. exactly. So we can't wait to share it with you. And with that, here is our next guest, Steve Perlman, a botanist with the Plant Extinction Prevention Program on the island of Kauai. I think clay, because it worked out so nicely last time, would you mind starting um, by asking some of those questions? Do you have them in front of you or should I? I do. I came okay. prepared. Well, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, and this is, I mean, I, I'm excited to learn too. I just, cause I, uh, Steve and I worked for, well, for a little while together, I was at the National Tropical Botanical Garden as, a, mm -hmm. as an aspiring field botanist. And so it is kind of neat to think about when you don't, you're working with people for years and often don't get a chance to kind of ask these these basics, right? And so, um, yeah, we would yeah. just start like to start things off just to tell us a bit about, you know, where you're from and grew up and how you kind of connected to the the place and the plants that you you're that you, you've been working with for so long. I was actually born in Michigan. My parents moved before I was even a year old. And when I was young, my dad was in the Air Force. And so he was stationed over in Hawaii several times, wow. and we did have relatives over in Hawaii. And so when I was young, uh, one of the places that he was stationed was Ellington Air Force Base. This is uh, near Galveston, Texas. We basically were in an area that was warm and there was bayous around and things like that and my dad loved to go to the beach my family he always had a boat so we would be fishing and boating and things like that and so one of my very best friends and i'll just say his name is dwight Lavinghouse, very much influenced me because at least i had someone really to play with because he was from alabama and their family was very rural and I just really remember that growing up, you know, having Dwight. And when I'd be out of school, we would always be on the bayou. And we had rafts that we would raft down the bayou. And we were like Huck Finn. And oh, we just wow. wanted to be bayou boys. And <laughs> oh. so that was kind of my, one of my wow. first memories is having this young guy, probably six or seven years old. I really got into raising snakes and catching snakes. Wow. And that's what we would do along the bayou. Steve, can I ask you a question? Where, What year was this? What, what time period? I would probably be about six or seven or eight years okay. old. So, you know, this is in the 1950s. Okay. We would find uh creatures along the bio as well and when they started draining right. it i found dinosaur bones of uh wow. yeah armadillo bones and ancient pigs with giant tusks and things that i would bring to the museum in houston i actually volunteered to work at the museum in the snake house because oh, i wanted wow. to raise them and learn about catching mm -hmm. snakes and so that really was my start i think to to being out in nature and Steve, so, can I ask you another yeah. question? Like oh, snake sure, hunting? Sure. Okay, so yeah. I have so many questions. <laughs> so like you're, nah. you're how old doing this? And are you actually like grabbing the snakes with your hands? Because <laughs> growing up in yeah. Hawaii, I have no idea. Yeah. yeah, well, part of it would be I was probably like, you know, eight to 12 years old or something like that. And yes, I would catch the snakes. We would, uh, we didn't even know at first what was poisonous and what wasn't. There would be these huge rat snakes and diamondback water snakes and things like that. And so wow. I would make cages and grow them and they would have eggs, some of them or live and I would raise them. Hey, Steve, were you thinking at this point, like, was this the sort of entry point where you might have been thinking like wow i mean working with the museum maybe i can uh, do this as a as a job like were you was not this not not so much as a job yeah. no but basically they they would just have me do things like they even had me collecting uh, hundreds of chameleons that they wanted wow. to send to other zoos and for every oh, gallon wow. jar of chameleons that I gave them. And so I learned how to catch chameleons really fast and I'd give them a gallon jar and they'd give me a baby rat snake for that. So <laughs> oh anyway, goodness. you guys were trading, you were yeah. trading species. Anyway, it was, it was a start. 
to be out in nature, though, yeah. as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And then we also lived in Southern California. And so I started surfing when I was five years old. And again, mm-hmm. when I was about 12 years old, we were over in Hawaii. My dad mm-hmm. loved Hawaii. Oh, okay. I did move a lot. And a lot of what I was doing was hiking. Even when I was in high school, I had made a conscious decision myself that I did not want to uh, be like a lot of my friends who were going to build houses or be a contractor or a plumber yeah, or electrician. Right. I really wanted to work with plants. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of mm-hmm. got to learning about them. And I thought, you know, this is what I wanted to do as far as a job. I started working at a nursery. So I was seeing and learning about endangered species. I really liked what botanical gardens were doing. When you were learning um, about plants like the silver sword let's just imagine you're like in the 60s in Haleakala crater you're hiking through this is way before any kind of conservation well not way before but like pre pre conservation pre fencing like there's goats running around all that stuff you're learning about these plants like did you did you pick up resources like books and things to self self-taught or did would you was there somebody there that was that you were you know going hiking with like how did you learn about this you know specialty of botany in Hawaii well when I did go through the crater you know I learned what the silver swords were there wasn't mm-hmm. a person or so there but when I moved to Kauai the girl who I later you know married Maria Kauai was her favorite island. The first job I got was at a botanical garden uh, called Olopua Gardens. And they had me landscape, you know, they had me growing. I knew nursery work, Mm -hmm. but I really thought I would go to the University of Hawaii and study. What I was doing was trying to start a native section Mm -hmm. for the Olopua Gardens. It was a small garden on Kauai. And I had heard about the gardens, which was not called National Tropical Botanical Gardens in those days. It was called Pacific Tropical Botanical Garden. And this would be in 1971. I went to the Botanical Garden and met their botanist, who was Daryl Herbst. He knew more about endangered species than anyone. Mm -hmm. And he Mm -hmm. is one of the people that did the book with Warren Wagner on the floor of Hawaii. But that was his job. And when I met him, I told Daryl Herbst that, well, I really want to do a job just like you've got. I'd love Mm -hmm. to hike with you. And he just told me, well, I can't pay you. We're just a few people working here, but you could hike with me because I have no field partner. I loved what Daryl was doing. I loved his ideas of growing and, you know, propagating endangered species and trying to save them and studying about native plants. And this was something that really, really caught my attention more than anything else in those days. Well, at this point, are you, I mean, there's the Pacific Tropical Botanical Garden. I mean, obviously there's this awareness that these plants are are rare, right? They are probably declining. Um, are they, the most of the work and hiking that you guys are doing, are you making collections at that point? Are you guys trying to bring in seed and propagules as well to, to, to get these things established in the garden? Like what was the kind of main goal at that time? I mean, we're in the 70s. So this is, again, like Melissa was saying kind of early on, what were they really trying to accomplish back, back then? Well, let me just say that it was very important that it was called the Pacific Tropical Botanical Garden because they had many very, very influential people, botanists from all around the United States and the world Mm -hmm. who really felt that the United States needed a tropical botanical garden, you know, and not just Florida or California because those places can freeze and all that. They needed a tropical place. And so they were deciding that Hawaii was where they wanted to have it. No money came with it, but they had a charter And all they wanted to do, basically, was prevent extinction and grow and protect native plants of the Pacific. And that is, I mean, to me, that just sounded like the most ideal job. That's why I told Daryl Herbst, you know, I I just really want to be your field partner if I can. And I'll hike with you. You don't have to pay me. And I'll just (laughs) hike with you. And he didn't like climbing trees. So he would have me climb the trees to get seeds on like Kokia kawaiensis. And he didn't like cliffs. And so I had spent about six months living in uh, Boulder, 
Colorado in that area, hiking on the flat irons and things like that, and learned a bit of cliff climbing. I mean, Steve, I have to interrupt you for a sec because I just have to, like, you know, tell a little anecdote. I mean, you're talking about the cliff work, which for those of you listening who don't know about Steve and cliffs, <laughs> just look it up. But, um, I mean, it's sort of what you're known for, because here's the thing, like when I was first starting out and, um, you know, Chuck and I were first dating like in the mid nineties and we went to go see the IMAX movie. Right. So (laughs) there's Steve on, on the ropes in this, whatever, 30 foot screen. I don't even know how big it was, but I mean, it was incredible because the iconic Steve moment is as you on the Molokai Cliffs, correct? Or on the yes, Kauai that, Cliffs, that, is that particular one. No, and, it was Molokai. Yeah, yeah okay. Molokai Cliffs on the um, Alula, the Bergamia up mm-hmm. there, like hand pollinating these tubular flowers. Yeah. And um, I was just like, I can't believe someone is doing this. And um, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure folks over the years have asked you about that, but I wanted to paint that picture because it really affected me, you know, just Mm -hmm. to see that on the big screen Mm -hmm. and realizing that this is a possible career, that these are things that you could actually do. So things that need to be done, right? I mean, that's the other part. It's just like the the precarity. So one of the films we did was with the Paul and Gracie Atkins, where they wanted to go ahead and do um, this strangers in paradise. This guy who had seen that film, wanted to do an IMAX film and he called it Hidden Hawaii. Ah, that's how that came about. Okay. But he only wanted me. He just wanted the one person. Not only did they want me to be on the cliff, but they wanted to give people vertigo and they wanted to film it with the camera on (laughs) the cliff. Which I will say they successfully did as a viewer. Yeah, they had me on a (laughs) 1500 foot cliff. You know, they, they basically, those are the highest sea cliffs. But I mean, if I had fallen, I would have died. There was no safety net. Oh my God. They wanted me to free climb. (laughs) They said, just say no if you don't want to do it. But they never Uh, wanted me to say no. And so they wanted me to rope. They wanted me to almost make it and not quite make it and just, you know, be more dramatic because we're making an IMAX film. And one of the ones who really influenced me was Harold St. John. And he's like the Mm. the grandfather of Hawaiian botany. Mm. And he even asked me when he came to visit my nursery uh, because he had written a monograph on the genus Brighamia. And he asked me, have you ever grown Brighamia? He said, Mm. I think they would grow. I think you could do it. And I hadn't grown any Brighamia and I didn't know anybody who had. And one of the things I did know was this roping and things like that. And so when Harold St. John asked me about doing these kinds of things, he really started me out. He said, you got to start a plant log. You got to log your numbers. Start with plant number one. Now I'm up to plant 27,570 right now, you know, from all my collections. Mm-hmm. And then I met people like uh, Otto Degener. You know, I would carry his, uh, you know, equipment for him and go in the field with oh him. Help me. He gave me wow. all seven of his books from helping him. And he basically was such an enthusiastic guy. So mm-hmm. Degener got me to start a, a log. Now I have over 4,000 days in the field, basically being in the field for over 10 years of your life, every day in the field, because that is all I wanted to do. I did later get training and got to go back to school and get a master's and things like that. But I really... Um, wanted to only do field work. And when they would ask me, do you want to be an administrator? And I would just tell them, no, 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 no. I only want to do field work. So you're coming from nurserymen and in the kind of gardens establishing. I'm just curious, like at what point, or was there a point, I suppose, when your role with respect to doing the field work, I know uh, became more established. So like defining what the garden needed, you know, in terms of having field botanists, having nursery people, having, you know, yeah. kind of the grounds management. Um, and also curious at what point, or, you know, was there a clear point at which um, the garden, so we're talking about, it's the Pacific Tropical Botanical Garden, which became the National Tropical Botanical Garden, did, because they do so much, um, they provide so much support for plant conservation in Kauai in particular. I'm wondering if there was kind of a, uh, like a deliberate transition or a deliberate shift um, to focusing on the, the plants on Kauai. In the first years, we had 20 different people come each year to a meeting. The scientific advisors would all be there really wanting the botanical garden to 
prevent extinction and to grow all these plants. And so a lot of it was to grow many, many of these endangered species of Hawaii, which had, you know, so many endangered species, you know, hundreds of them were finally listed. Most of them had never been grown before. And so the Botanical Gardens nursery was just full of endangered species to grow. So we had to learn how to propagate them. So we had to do air layering and grafting and learning the seeds and having to do pollinating like with the Brighamia and things like that. So not only grow the plants of Hawaii, but the whole South Pacific. I mean, the garden sent us to Tonga and work in New Caledonia Mm -hmm. and the French Polynesia. We got to, you know, I got to live over a year in the Marquesas Islands. It was Mm -hmm. to work with the governments of those islands and to learn to protect and save a lot of these plants, you know, Guam. And that is really what I wanted to do was to stay focused on the entire South Pacific. And nowadays it has changed a bit to where uh, mm-hmm. the state forestry uh, in the early days of the gardens um, that started up around, I'll have to say around 1990, they wanted uh, our state botanist, who was Carolyn Korn, wanted NTBG basically to grow every one of the listed endangered species. Just to just sort of paint the picture for people who don't know, you know, what those efforts looked like in Hawaii. I mean, this would have been before nurseries were growing these things. This would have been perhaps before, you know, like Anna Palomino's shop on Maui and Maui Nui. This would have been before the state efforts to and Pohakalua training area and the Army U.S. Army garrison. This all predates you know, the propagation all predates those efforts, correct? And you you were really sort of there at, from from the beginning, sort of inventing I, what I imagine. Well, no one um, was really growing them. Yeah, that's right. And lion, li- was lion? Lion I was, mean, what? yeah. And uh, there was mm-hmm. a foster garden uh, as well okay. that was going in those early days. They would grow a few things, but it just wasn't everything. And that's why Carolyn Korn, was the state botanist really didn't have the support of forestry and and the division of forestry just to do endangered species you know there were there were there were recreational forests and that's why she hired ntbg for five years was that all through the 1980s i used to hike with john obata who was a botanist on oahu we would hike and just nothing would stop us. I mean, with John, we would just go into all these <laughs> steep areas and he learned his plants so well. He was just like the, you know, I'd already got my degree. I had worked with the Nature Conservancy. They had started the Heritage Program. And we started, you know, listing where all these plants are and mapping them and things like that. So I hired John Obata as one of my part-time field partners and Ken Wood, who was just kind of beginning. He, he had done some work at the Botanical Gardens. Kenwood was very young and energetic and studying as hard as he could, learning about plants, but he also really knew how to do cliff work better than I did. And Mm. Kenwood Mm -hmm. has been my favorite field partner of my life and my career for over 30 years now. And he didn't like hiking with a lot of other people. And so it would usually just be Ken Wood and I or or John Obata and I in the field constantly. Uh, Let me just say, too, uh, that that Brighamia was one of the plants that we were very successful with. And people had never grown them before. And so, but now there are hundreds of thousands of them in cultivation because they became very popular in Europe. And it's now a house plan in Europe, and they even have yeah. you know, different names for it. But And so Fish yeah. and Wildlife Service also mm-hmm. became very, very interested in cultivating a lot of these things because that's what they wanted to do. But That's what I was going to ask you about, about the transition where you, all of a sudden you're, you're, you're gaining a bit better appreciation and these other agencies become interested in uh, how does that you know, transition into kind of you know, building capacity across the state. Loyal Merhoff had a lot to do with it. He was working for Fish and Wildlife Service and he wanted to start up a program that would, you know, I mean, they were already paying my way to go to all the different islands and those would be the most critically endangered that had less, 50 or less. And they were wanting to call it Genetic Safety Net Program as well. I, after several meetings, told him genetic safety net doesn't sound good. Make it 
It sounds like it's making mm -hmm. genetics safe and there were GMO people who didn't like genetics. And so I came up with the name Plant Extinction Prevention mm -hmm. Program. That really tells what we want to do. And so mm -hmm. to start with the island of Oahu, and they hired the first coordinator there. So I started working with Susan Ching on Oahu, showing her where all these rare plants were. And then the mm -hmm. same happened on all of the islands. For Maui, they ended up getting Hank Oppenheimer. And they ended up putting Ane Bakudis at first on Oahu and then later on Molokai. And they had Kaylee Ibio on the big island. And, and they knew some of their plants, but they used my knowledge of the various islands some of my favorite areas were the North Shore of Molokai. I love the cliffs there, the highest sea cliffs in the world. Working with the Brighamias showed a lot of plants, but also mm -hmm. Kauai. I loved the North Shore of Kauai, the Nepali coast. Same thing. Working with yep. Ken on the Nepali coast, places like Kalalau, we just discovered that there were so many species that only lived on cliffs. Yeah, and I just want to, again, just to give, again, listeners a, a, an idea of just the scale and kind of the importance of this. When we talk about, you had mentioned the criteria to be part of this program, to get the attention of this program, the Plant Extinction Prevention Program focuses on these species where there's 50 individuals or less. So 50 plants, living plants left in the wild or less. And uh, I'm, I think it's about... 40 to 60 species per island, right? It, so that's how it, many it varies. species. So it's, no, it's a no, yeah, it is task. a lot. The number they, they yeah. use right now is we have 288 species in the Plant Extinction wow. Prevention so Program. More, yeah. And Kauai wow. has like 82 species, more than any of the other right, islands because right. it's yeah. an older island and you have more plant diversity and Higher things diversity. like that there. Right. But yeah, 288 species with less than 50 individuals. But many of them, no one's seen. Yeah. Many of them are even thought extinct now. And, and so in Hawaii yeah. already, we have more than 130 mm. species yeah. that have gone extinct and in the wild. I'm glad that you're bringing that up because I do want to dig into that um, a bit, you know, um, well, a couple things. I mean, you're talking about these unbelievable, you know, painting the picture of the highest sea cliffs in the world, you know, um, as you just did and, and how, you know, you're, that's just in your bones. That's just what you love. Those are the places that you connect to the most. Um, you know, and, and I'd love to hear more about your actual feelings related to that. And is it the plants? Is it everything? Is it being with your field partner, your favorite field partner? And then second to that, and this was asked of me recently, you know, about the artwork that I do that at times showcases things that have gone extinct, like fully in my own lifetime, you know, and the effect that that mm -hmm. has on people like you and me and, you know, those of us who've yeah. worked with things that are no longer, um, I talked about the grief, you know, that we feel, I think, or speaking for myself, I feel, um, and conservationists deal with that, you know, to some degree, I'd love to hear more about both those things. I'd love to hear about your connection to these incredible places. And then also mm -hmm. how you okay. deal with these when losses. I am hiking into a lot of these really, uh, hard to get to areas and they're cliffy sometimes or they're valleys you're really in remote areas and so you know i have been called an exploratory botanist because i i want to go I, I mean i've been given a few nicknames and things like that it is the life that is in these areas not just plants but i was always interested in the birds mm -hmm. and in also the insects and part of it is being with other people who are studying those things. And so even on Kauai, I used to hike with John Sincock when he would go into the Alakai Swamp because he was by himself. He had no field partner and he wanted me to hike with him and we'd go in and study the o'o, yeah. the Kauai o'o bird. And so I would even yeah. do fish and, you know, the Fish and Wildlife Service trainings because I would be in these remote areas. You want to know more of what else is there. And so I did do a lot of the studying and I would mm -hmm. be on these five-year transects that we would do. I worked with the Kauai O'o, the Nukupu'u, and the O'u. Those are three species which are now extinct on Kauai. But I used to see them and watch with, you know, yeah. watch them preening their feathers. And so the, the, the hurt that you get from seeing animals too, but basically it's birds 
that uh, that have gone extinct. I yeah. saw the Pouli on Maui. I used to go and be in the Hana V area up above Hana, and those are extinct now. And so I have, it, it is part of what you want to do when you're learning about things. You're in such a remote area. You want to do more studying. You want to read all about the plants. You want to be able to key them out. Mm-hmm. And so you go to all these rare plants. You're trying to propagate them. You're trying to find more of them. You study them and learn and learn and learn and you go to those same plants trying to get seeds from them and you're monitoring so you go again and again and again and you do learn to really like them and they become you know not so much like family but you know they're friends you see them you 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 want to help them you don't want them to die you want to grow those seed and so it is an emotional thing where you're growing them you're very happy when they grow but you certainly are struck and it's tragic when they die. And especially if you see a plant that you've been visiting for 20 or 30 or 40 years, I've been doing this for over 50 years now and Mm -hmm. seeing, you know, at least 30 species that you were working with in the wild and then they die out. It's very tragic. And so what I used to do is I I would write poetry from the the feelings. And, you know, a lot of it is working with these really critically. And and I usually would only write the poems when I was by myself. When I could sit by the plant, I would maybe hike to the very last plant of something on Molokai, like the Pracharya Monroe and sit there with it. and, And poems and thoughts would come into my mind that I would write down. And I used to read a lot. And, and I love poetry. Do you have? I'm wondering, do you have one? I handy? don't have a poem um, handy. Even... No, I don't right now. Oh, I don't. I was uh, say we could pause. But, uh, no, no. <laughs> grab it for uh, us I don't have a poem to read for you, but... Uh, we need some yeah. recitation. Come I on, know. Steve. We're going to have to do a part <laughs> two. Well, that's, that's what we were doing on that panel, uh, Melissa, is that I think it was 2009. They had me there to talk about poetry, but also... <laughs> Uh, it just reminds me of books and things, you know, I haven't really said this yet, but you know, I have been in the National Geographic magazine, you had kind of mentioned that. And I've been in the magazine about three or four times already. Thinking back um, to like the 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 press and the awareness that sort of seemed to be growing. um, I'm just curious what you think about where I guess plant conservation has kind of come to nowadays and where it's sort of fallen short in terms of just making more of the public aware of the status. Mm -hmm. And I mean, if you want to elaborate too, of just like where, how we need to do more, how much more we we do need to do uh, to protect these. Uh, We are successful at some levels where we are uh, collecting the seeds, storing them at Lion Arboretum and at the Botanical Garden NTBG. So seed storage is better. We have tissue culture. There are techniques now to grow a lot of the plants that we didn't used to have. A lot of that is getting better, but there are still these issues of how do you teach people to care about these plants and how do you teach the people that what you're doing is important Mm. to save them because Hawaii and a lot of these Pacific islands do have all these hundreds of endangered species that we of course are not doing enough to protect them from extinction. We're trying, but there's just so much more that has to happen. And and that's part of what I have learned and people who I work with have learned that we can't believe how fast a lot of this is going. You know, the urgency is just so much more than any of us ever thought, you know, that we've already lost 130 species that are extinct in the wild. But, you know, to teach people and young people why is it important to save all these species is that these plants evolved over millions of years and places like Hawaii, yeah, over 90% of our flora is endemic. And that's the highest in the world. But islands in general have a lot of threats. And a lot of the threats are animals that were brought in or weeds that are brought in. But there are diseases and rats. But I think of these plants when I look at them and study them and work with Mm -hmm. them to save them is that they are just like the jewels of creation. And we will never get them again. If we lose them, extinction is forever.
There are programs now, the national parks work at saving them. There are watershed partnerships to do it. There is this plant extinction prevention program, the PEP program, that is aimed at doing this, but it's not nearly enough people. But there needs to be at least five people on each island. You have at least have two in the field constantly, a coordinator, and then two people who do nothing but outplant and do fence work and things like that. And so... And so I do work with the Plant Extinction Prevention Program. I am their one statewide specialist because I have worked all the islands and get to still work. I just got to go work on the big island recently with the coordinator over there, Josh. And I just got to work on Maui with the coordinator over there, Hank Oppenheimer. But I work a lot on Kauai because this is where I live and work. Uh, we could talk about the Army Environmental Unit, you know, had up to um, like 60 people working over there because of lawsuits and things like that. And some of the valleys like Makua Valley, where they were burning and destroying by. So the Army was putting up money to save these things. And they had a huge crew doing yeah. this. So much more needs to be done to save these species, but not just in Hawaii, but basically the whole South Pacific. And that's why I'd like to see at least uh, the botanical garden working at that whole idea of still getting out in the whole Pacific. I was just going to add, like, I think a lot of these uh, programs feel the same, especially the PEP program, having, uh, you know, worked directly with them too over the years, um, that that they just need more resources, right? And even when you kind of go and switch gears and look at a program like the, the Army Natural Resource Program where they have 50 staff or something like that, and and even they are, are seeming to – they kind of reach their limits as far as what what's able to be done and so yeah that's that i think that that piece of reaching out and kind of understanding how we generate more support more understanding is, is pretty pretty important here that's exactly what i was going to talk about too clay because it strikes me and i i yeah. feel like so much of what you're doing like in this interview in the films and in, in the projects you've described the creative work is really at, at its core encouraging folks to have relationship with the land that's why we we're doing this show and i mean at the end of the day don't you think it's an emotional connection um like the one that you're describing um you know having that relationship whatever which we don't even have words for you know those of us who spend time in the field and know these places um uh, and and it also I also think about what we talked about Clay um, with Bob Hobdy and those values that are endemic really to so many Pacific Island cultures that are like either just suppressed or diminished or are still there in some cases and you know reaffirming the, those ties to um, you know spiritual ties, if you want to call it that or whatever, um, you know, to plants, to animals, to, to the, the natural world. I just feel like there's so much of that that needs to happen. We're so disconnected, mm-hmm. as you described, you know, in sitting inside, mm-hmm. typing away at the computer or whatever, you know, yeah. we, we just are not with the land, perhaps as someone like you. And so I often think like, what do we need to do <laughs> to to keep it going or to encourage, right? Encourage those relationships. Well, I love working in the South Pacific and I love South Pacific peoples. And this is a part of what I really love about my job. I love being outdoors. I love going to islands and things like that. But I I think part of it is the beauty of those islands and the beauty of those people on those islands. And I have spent my whole life and career doing that. And uh, I'll say that I have been very affected by that because I I even just mentioned that I, I, I got to live over a year in the Marquesas Islands. Those are the kind of places that I love to go to. And it's a lot of what Hawaii would have been like in those early days, but I love the people in places like that. And I love people in Hawaii as well. I love that Ohana spirit, you know, some of these people that I have met and got to go to. My favorite islands that I've gotten to work in the South Pacific are islands that don't have airports yet, that there are only a couple hundred people on that island. And when you'll be on that island, you usually have to get there by boat. And I've had to sail, or I got to sail down to the Marquesas Islands twice at least where I'd live on a boat for three months and there's about a dozen islands there and when I would be on those islands and there are only a few hundred people on that island 
I just love that lifestyle. I love how the people are just, um, you know, they, they just love not only the land, but the sea and you're on a boat and you're getting to go to these places. And most of the guys go fishing in the morning or lobster diving and they have vegetable gardens. And I, that lifestyle is a lot of the lifestyle I want and, and like to get back to. Well, and it's just so, it's just like who we are. It's just who we are for, for millennia, right? <laughs> and like, it's just that relationship that we have. Yeah, but it but it's getting out into the real world too. And not just, right. you know, being in your house, watching television or being on your phone or something like that. It's <laughs> staying away from things like that. And when you're on a boat for three months, you know, I mean, I've met yachties, you know, who'd been out there for 17 years, you know, but I'm on a right. boat for three months. I don't get any news. I don't read any papers. It's the real world is yeah. all you're seeing. And that's the lifestyle that I love. Even on Kauai, I try not to get that much news because it's depressing. And I try not to, you know, watch too much TV. I like to stay outdoors. I like to hike. I still love to hike. That's still what I do. I, to get to go to places like my favorite island, you know, or two in the Marquesas are the ones, like I say, that don't have airports yet. So Fatuiva and Tahuata are my two favorite islands. They're only a couple hundred people. And National Geographic paid our way, me and Kenny, to get to go to Rapa'iti in the Austral Islands. And same thing, boat only comes there every six months. You know, some days what it used to. Now it comes there about every six weeks, but no airport. And you're there with a couple hundred people and there's no hotels, no restaurants. You got to stay with a local family and you learn how they appreciate life, how they love their families, how they, you know, just just being out in nature, basically, and in the places that they love. They want to take care of those islands and not lose their plant. They don't know a whole lot about endemic plants, but, you know, even when you talk to people in Hawaii, you know, they go, oh, well, food and family is the only important thing. But no, a lot of the older people who cared about these plants and things like that realize that, you know, these are special plants and they're not found anywhere else in the world. And they are the jewels of creation. And so you don't want to just have your animals come in and eat them up and rats eat all the seeds. They do want to protect what is endemic to their islands and try to grow them. And so that's why botanical gardens such as NTBG, you know, really should still work at working with the governments of these islands to set up conservation programs like the PEP program in places like French Polynesia and New Caledonia and Tonga, you know, all these places and islands that I've gotten to work, there's just so much more than most people know, but I love the people and what's going on with the people in the communities. I'll just tell you mm -hmm. the best talk that I ever went to that I can think of was one that Nainoa Thompson, gave a talk on Maui. And what I loved about his talk the most, he, he showed just hundreds of pictures and, and, you know, two slide carousel. This was years ago. But Nainoa just concentrated on pictures of the people. And I just loved seeing those pictures and hearing stories and Mao, who was their teacher with the celestial navigation and things, showing him how he was not only monitoring when he's awake, but even when he's asleep, there's a picture of him asleep in the boat. And if the current had changed or the wind changed, he would wake up. And it's just, you know, meeting people like that who got to have a lifestyle makes me want to have that lifestyle as well. And it's why with the years I've got left, I'm turning 75 years old already. Before I get much older, I want to go back to a lot of those places and get to see those people and be with those people again who, you know, don't really, <laughs> I mean, some of, you know, some of TV, yeah. you know, sports and things and all that is good for you, but yeah. just to be out in nature and, you know, be away from your television and all those kind of things. Yeah. Young people should still want to do that. Just have that connection. Well, and I think, you know, in those places, no one ever, no one's going to ever question the, <laughs> the, the, the ethics or the value of, 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 you know, 
keeping them part of the ecosystem, right? Like we, we were like, that's like this conversation you often have for, well, I feel like in the, in the States at least where you're like, well, what's yeah. the point, right? Or what's, what, you know, what's the, there's, you know, it's uh there's only three left of them. Like what's, what's yeah. the point of trying? And it's like, well, I, I think when you kind of set yourself step, step back away from where you're in, you know, in these places where people remain connected, you, you don't ever question, you know, the, the worth or the value of these species. It's they're part of the system and just, because they are that's worth um working to uh to, well, to keep them around yeah and, and and yeah i mean life is for learning and part of what i have learned is that hawaii is unique in that we are so isolated we are the most isolated island group basically in the world and we are thousands of miles from away from continents and things like that so plants that got here to hawaii usually got here as only one seed they got here, you know, with birds, maybe on their feathers or internally or things like that. Not many of them got here by blowing here in the wind or washing ashore. Most of the plants that got here as one seed, and they think about 250 species got here, they are in such a remote area that they were able to evolve and change into all the species that we've got. Hawaii is unique in that it has the flora that uh, basically can survive with low populations with just a few plants. So you talk to some people, they'll go, well, you know, you need huge populations to save these species. But no, we have species here that I have worked with where I like I rediscovered Cyania pinnatifida on Oahu. It was just one plant. And I worked with it and we got it cultivated. And now... You know, there are people I can remember talking to people who go, oh, well, it's doomed. Right. You know, you have only one plant left. You know, your, your genetics is not there. It's not going to be saved. It'll die. But no, now the army over on Oahu has outplanted hundreds of cyania pinnatifida. Now we have hundreds of plants again. They're eight foot tall and flowering and the genetics comes back. The diversity comes back. And, and Hawaii, and you talk to people and that, wow, they never thought of that before, that Hawaii is selected for that. And we really can. So I don't think of any of our species as doomed because of the genetics is, is too low. I mean, that may happen, but I don't think of them that way. I think that we could save them all. And here's the other thing that may happen in the near future is that as we get smarter and, and get technical about all these growing these plants and learning how to propagate them, that we are going to be able to propagate them just from the leaves in the very near future. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is kind of going from, you know, growing orchids and things like that and learning how to do micropropagation and tissue culture and things like that. But we won't need the flowers or the fruit. All you're going to need is the leaves to save a lot of these species. And then we're going to be able to clone them and propagate them. And I would think in the next 20 years, we'll be able to grow so many of them just from the leaf. Yeah, no, it's so exciting to hear, yeah. you know, we are speaking for myself anyway, <laughs> thinking it, uh, that so much is well, so much is being lost. It's like 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 water through our fingers, right? At yeah. times, we think about all that's gone, all that is disappearing, and then you know the new generation of conservation is many many more people than when I started. Absolutely, yeah. And you know, and then all of these wonderful creative projects out there to reach all kinds yeah. of people, not just those who are, who are in the field, you know, to, uh, you know, and, and commercial projects too. And I mean, and then the technologies that you're describing, I mean, it's, it's pretty, it's very exciting mm-hmm. um, from my point of view. Um, I want to ask you a couple of like funny questions. <laughs> We've asked Bob. These are on my others. This is under the others section only because they're kind of fun. Um, uh, the one, one, and I know this is totally unfair because it's like, what question do you have, you know, with respect to the natural world? Is there one burning question? Of course, there's like 25,000 burning questions, but is there something that you've studied, you know, could be super specific, um, with regard to Bergamia or even, you know, a, another plant or, or something that you wish, wish you really knew what was going on with that particular plant, that particular mm-hmm. system, this particular place. Is there something that sticks out in your mind? You're like, gosh, I just wish I had another sure. 30 years to figure this out. Uh, this uh, Here's an opportunity just to tell you, basically, when you go to all these different places and work all these different islands, which I have done and made a career out of it, it takes a lot of study. 
And I would go to Bishop Museum and I would go to herbariums and study the plants before I'd go to any of these places. And I would study books and read books and help with publications and things. And over the years, I haven't really said this yet, but, you know, I basically, uh, you know, and not to brag and things like that, but you're often with at least one partner. You're not always hiking alone, but I used to hike alone a lot too. You know, I, I have discovered, and, and it's hard to say how many species you really want to say you discover by yourself because you're usually with someone. Over 50 new species have I discovered over the years that have been named. And, you know, I've got about 10 named after me. And But what I know from doing that and going to all these places is that, yes, I wish I even knew more. I wish I, you know, could read more and study more. I look at the specimens. I read the books. I learn to key them. But there are problems, at least with me, that I don't think I know my ferns as well as I wish I did. And so Kenny Wood would help me a lot when I'd be working with him because he would study ferns. The other would be that I don't think I know grasses and sedges enough because it's so hard to identify them. You know, you have to count the glooms and you have to look at the hairs and you have to just learning how to monitor and recognize because that's what you actually are doing when you're finding new Mm -hmm. species and getting to go to these remote areas Mm -hmm. as like the Marquesas Islands, you know, and no one had been on some of these mountain peaks. And, you know, when you're there, you want to know what birds you might look for. And so you, there's just not near enough time to study it, you know, and you'd see a rake Mm -hmm. or some bird that fly, you know, and it's so rare or an insect you'd be with an entomologist like Steve Montgomery you know, and he'd work with the happy-faced mm-hmm. spiders or the carnivorous caterpillars. And places like Tonga, where you'd be working on islands, it's just so much more than most people know. Tonga is yeah. over 170 islands. I got to go with Clay Trownick there to Palau. And Palau, for me, it was like paradise because it's over 700 islands. We're in a boat every day getting dropped off on an uninhabited island. Everybody's diving on the weekends yeah. with beautiful water and fish and things like that. But you're, you're looking at a flora that, you know, you just, most people can't climb those islands even. Okay, Clay, I want to I hear about this, this Palau trip with yeah. Steve. <laughs> Clay. That was uh, yeah a while back when I, I was an assistant botanist at the the botanical garden and I, I got to go on this trip just because um our one of the herbarium guys uh, Tim Flynn forgot that his passport had expired and so they, they <laughs> called me up I was visiting family uh, in New York at the time and they're like hey, hey do you wanna do you wanna go to Palau and uh, so yeah it was a very quick and easy answer um, but yeah I mean yeah, you're like let me check into the flights right away. <laughs> Oh my gosh! Yeah, so I was able to jump on uh, jump on that trip. I think we were there six weeks yeah. or so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Most longer. trips were six weeks long, and basically, yeah. Palau is the furthest west uh, that you can go in Micronesia, and it's right on the Philippine yeah. Sea. But it's wow. known as it's one of the top five dive centers in the I world. Know, People I go know. there for the diving, but it's over seven hundred islands, wow. and so we're just in a boat every day, going, getting dropped off on an uninhabited island and exploring it and documenting the flora. And we're actually, uh, NTBG is doing a, a flora of Palau right now. Wow. And so Kenny Wood and other people are still getting to go there. There's still a project going to do the flora, and there's a flora of. Uh, of Samoa that's coming out that Dave Lawrence is working with. And I haven't really mentioned Dave, but he's another very influential person. I've been working with him since the 1980s. <laughs> a year ago, really finally published, after over 30 years, the flora of the Marquesas Islands. And so in working there in the Marquesas, I'll just throw this out there, is that uh, we discovered over 60 new species there doing wow. that work. And so it increased their flora by over 20%. Uh, by all the species that we'd found. And so it was just not only fun to be on those islands, but it was remarkably, you know, good as far as what we could discover and the work that we were doing being, you know, important uh, in their flora. I wanted to ask you my other other, um, time travel question or the one that is sort of a fantasy one, which is um, if you could go back in time, I don't know if you ever think about this, I don't, oh. you know where what 
where would that be? Who would it be with? And what <laughs> might that place look like if you had to just yeah. choose one? I know, which is a hard thing to choose, but well, I mean, you do spend so much time. I mean, talking, you know, speaking for myself, so much time in the herbariums, like imagining what these things look like, these things that are gone, these things, some of which are still there. Is there a special place like that for you or a time when you did sort of think back about what a place might have looked like or what people might have looked like in relation to a place? <laughs> well, Melissa, I don't know how I'm going to answer all those things. But, uh, <laughs> but basically, um, you know, I, I, I like rural areas. Mm-hmm. Part of why, you know, where my home is, I want to look at wilderness. I want to be out in it, in nature and places like that. And so one of the people, as far as I'm trying to think of people, uh, that comes to mind, you know, if I could go back in time and see someone, I would probably want to go back in time to meet John Muir, because he was a very influential man. He loved Yosemite. We know that. And his love for the forests and the places was so much that he even got to go to our president, Teddy Roosevelt, and talk to him and influence him to get him to start the whole national park system. And what would this country and world be like if we'd never started the national parks? And I think the national parks are a huge influence, uh, you know, on our world and what we're doing and other countries are doing it, trying to save places. You go to places like New Zealand. I love going there and I've hiked, you know, all their five major trails, you know, the Milford Track and the Roper and the Hollyford and the Kepler and all that. I love that kind of hiking, but I love the way they're preserving their land and the rural aspect of it. I want to go back to Fiji. I want to go to Samoa. I want to see the island of Savai. Kenny Wood got to go there. I didn't. So there are places I want to go. Back to the Marquesas. I want to go back to Fatuiva was one of my very favorite islands in the Marquesas. It's the most southern island. It's like Kauai used to be. And it's what I loved about Kauai when I moved here over 50 years ago because there were no traffic lights. There was no traffic. There was only 25,000 people. And it was so rural in those days. And the Nepali coast, so beautiful and boating and fishing. And and part of what I love, too, is the sea. You know, it isn't all about people and land, but people and sea. I, I love the sea. So, Steve, I mean, like you are retiring uh, very soon yeah. and you're speaking to a little bit of what you're going to do next, yes. which it sounds like you want to get to many of these places that you visited before, maybe long ago, maybe in the recent past. And um, yeah, I mean, do you have thoughts about about the next steps outside of what you just outlined and anything else you might want to add as we close? Well, I, yes, am turning 75 years old and that's why I'm going to say I'm retiring. I will still, (laughs) I will still hike with my best friend. I will still hike with Scotty Heinzman over here, who's with the pet program. (laughs) And uh, basically I will hike with Ken Wood because he, you know, is still, I'm, I'm still a research associate in botany with, National Mm -hmm. Tropical and Ken is still a field partner and I will still hike with them and do camping and hiking, but I won't be paid anymore because I want to spend the next five years traveling. And um, before I get too old, between 75 and 80, and I don't know how long I'll live. My dad died at 77 years old, so I don't want to wait too long. And I really want to get back to doing a lot of hiking in a lot of these places. So two or three trips to New Zealand, two or three to Western Australia and Australia. And I've mentioned a few, but I'd like to see South America. I'd like to hike the Andes Mountains, and I want to do it before I get too old. So I want to see Peru, and I'd like to see the Amazon River, and but I will still come back and hopefully still be able to work with the PET program, the Plant Extinction Prevention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I am thinking that within I, I'm three months away from retiring, and yeah, that's right. I mean, what I love yeah. about this is it's almost coming full circle in a sense that you uh, started out as a volunteer, and then you may end up a little bit yeah. a volunteer. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I'm lucky in that uh, I, I want to still 
do it while I can. And I don't want to wait too long. And I have met people who have done that and waited too long. And then the wife dies or the other way around and, uh, or you can't hike or you get hurt or something. So while I still can hike and I love to hike still, uh, I really want to get out and do it while I can. Um, Clay, did you have anything else you wanted to add or ask Steve before we finish here? No, I'm just, uh, I, I can't believe you didn't bring uh, poetry, Steve. That's why. Well, I would just be reading you one of my poems. But I, as I, uh, what comes to mind, though, is that I would get these wonderful letters, which I saved from Harold St. John, very much encouraging me, telling me, you know, oh, many botanists have been to the Wahiwa Bog, or, but no one has been up to Kapalaua, the next peak beyond. So why not go there? And, you know, just really giving me helpful hints right. of what to do. And, you know, so several of those species up there I found by myself you know it was just so much fun to do and so I I just um, am really glad I'm just so glad I had a career like this and that there was a botanical garden that was doing exactly what I wanted to do to get to work in those places and the people that I've gotten to meet you know that really had that aloha spirit is what I can say you know about people in Hawaii but I met the South Pacific peoples who have that wonderful lifestyle and they, their lives still are really, really good. And so stay, you know, for young people, if anyone's listening to this that really hears it, I really would encourage you to stay outdoors and enjoy yourselves hiking and stay away from big cities and really that there is, <laughs> there are still beautiful places in the world. And I had a whole career of doing it and, uh, you know, that it is still possible and that the age of discovery is not over, you know, to be able to say that I've discovered, you know, and work with over 50 new species that have been named, you know, so, you know, this, there are still new species to find. There are still places where we can find them. So I would encourage people to learn how to hike into these places and get out in these places and study these plants because that age of discovery is not over. Life is for learning and get out yeah. and do it. Well, we couldn't close on a more wonderful note, Steve. <laughs> thank you so much for talking oh, with us. Thanks, we Steve. so well, enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. You're a huge mentor of mine and of so many people. Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah, we're just, it was a delight to hear all of your stories and all of, all of the work you've done. Well, thank you so much, Melissa and Clay. I yeah. I, I enjoyed this too, and uh, and it's an opportunity to mm-hmm. say some of these things, you know, yeah. if people haven't heard them before, because I do yeah. really feel this way, and uh, as you can tell, you know, and I do get emotional about it, and that's uh, what we want. We want it. We yeah. want the emotion because I think that people connect with the emotion, human emotion yeah. behind yeah. the work yeah. that we do. That's why we're doing this. So no, I'm just so thankful that I got to spend a whole career doing this kind of work. 